All right, thanks again, guys, and good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our church. My name is Chris. If you came in late, uh, I, um, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Hiawatha. We are um, right now in the book of Acts. If you uh, have a Bible or a phone app, want to turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, please feel free. Though, as always, this will be on screen if that's easier just to follow along there. Uh, Acts 22:30 to 23:11 is uh, today's passage. Acts, um, if you're brand new to this book, uh, and by the way, if you're new to our church, uh, we um, love preaching through the Bible. A Bible's a big deal, big deal for us here. Uh, not just in that we like to learn, but we uh, th- believe that, that God has chosen to speak uh, primarily through the Bible to us, and even more than that, through his son who is in the pages of, of the Bible. And so it's the time for us to hear from him, uh, to learn uh, concepts and definitions and how the Bible hangs together and so forth, but especially to hear God call out to us saying, I love you. And this is what I've done for you. And believe in me and you will be saved. And so uh, if you're brand new, just, just hear that from us. Obviously, we're not new in that. The church has basically been doing that for 2,000 years. But uh, at the same time, uh, it, it can be kind of novel depending on your background and, and all that. So uh, Acts, uh, a, little, a little bit on Acts if you're um, just joining us. Acts is uh, titled Acts because it refers to the actions of the Holy Spirit of God in the church. So it is the last history book genre-wise of the Bible dealing with uh, kind of what happened basically in the world after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to fill uh, sinners and start to save people. And so basically we're going to see that today kind of continue in a way, but we're at the end of the book now where Paul the Apostle who used to murder Christians is now a Christian himself. It's been one of the big kind of uh, story arcs of the whole book is this guy who uh, was thinking he was being zealous for God, um, totally misguided though, murdering Christians, imprisoning Christians, tearing fam- Christian families apart. Uh, Jesus just appeared to him and said, stop, I-, I love you, I forgive you, now you're my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to uh, non-Jewish people or the Gentiles. At the same time, he preaches a lot to Jewish people, being a Jew himself, and now at the end of the book, he's back in Jerusalem preaching the gospel to Uh, Jewish people, and there's a lot going on here, a lot of angst, a lot of fighting. It's an angry book, like I said last week. The Jews, uh, many of whom are believing the gospel, uh, many of whom are not, though. They are rejecting Paul, thinking he's a sellout, he's a traitor, he um, used to be in our team, that that whole thing, and now you're not. And so there's a lot of uh, that kind of stuff going on. There's this uh, kind of clash of ideologies and uh, perspectives on who Jesus Christ really, really was. Uh, So Paul's back in Jerusalem. He's on trial. He's basically been arrested. Uh, Last week we saw how he gave his testimony before all these Jewish people, and they were listening, and they were quiet, and they were following. But when he said, God wanted me to go to Gentile people to save them, they lost their minds, they freaked out, wanted to kill him. We'll see that kind of play out today. The Roman tribunes here, and this is actually one thing that's actually kind of saved Paul's life so far, is that the Jews are not in control of their land at this point in history. The, The Romans have annexed the land, and so Roman governors and tribunes and so forth are still kind of uh, governmentally in control. And so the Jews just can't kill people, even though they try to at times, and that's going to come up here again in Acts before it's all said and done. Um, They don't really have a lot of authority. And so uh, the tribune here today is going to kind of say, actually, just go and figure this out. They're they're paid to keep the peace for the Romans, and it's not happening. And so they just want to figure this out and get these uh, parties together to kind of hold hands and figure this out. It doesn't really happen. But that's kind of the, the, the basis of today's passage is that Paul is going to just one more time try to appeal and, and give his testimony and share what happened when Jesus appeared to him and how he changed overnight from killing Christians to being one and starting churches all over the Roman Empire. What happened? 
One last chance to kind of do that. It's not going to go well, as you might have guessed, uh, but that, that sort of sets us up for a lot of history and a lot of theology in these books. And, and again, remember that when you read your Bible. It's not narrative. It's not just history. It's theology within the, the, um, the, the, the lines of the his, historical account. So um, we'll see that today as well. All right? It's a few things on Acts, where we've been, kind of where we're at in biblical history, where we're at in history itself, and then where we're at within the book uh, it's so hard to summarize where we've been uh, now 12 months into this book, but that's uh, a short synopsis. But let's uh, dive in and look at this theme of striking the high priest today. Uh, it's a very layered theme, and I'll explain it as we go, but it covers a lot of different angles today. This theme of hitting or striking uh, the, the high priest uh, of uh, the Jewish kind of old covenantal system, and then beyond that too. Acts 22.30 to 23.11. Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, do you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord Jesus stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome." All right, so three layers to this idea of striking the high priest today. Uh, as you'll see, it's kind of a layered, nuanced thing uh, and, and just happens to fit with a number of people in the passage, including Paul and the high priest and even beyond, uh, which we'll end with. But if you want to follow along in that outline in your sermon insert, uh, ser- or the insert in your uh, worship folder, please feel free to do that as well, kind of see where we're headed. But we'll start with uh, the first piece here. Paul is struck. And so looking at Paul from a human angle is a guy like us, Uh, saved by the same Jesus, uh, saved as a sinner like us, saved by the same gospel, the same grace, now testifying to this truth like a lot of us uh, have or or do or or will do uh, before people who are not yet Christians. And so there's kind of some similarities there, some things we can learn and and lessons. But I want to focus, though, on this first part because it's the most obvious and most accessible, kind of at face value, this is what's going on with the first paragraph especially. And that is, Paul is simply struck for being a Christian and saying that his conscience is clean. So if that kind of felt fast, that he would be ordered 
to have his mouth be struck, it kind of is. He just says, my conscience is clean, and uh, the high priest orders uh, servants who are standing right close, right next to Paul to strike him uh, in the mouth. But basically, it's all he said. It's my conscience is clean, meaning he really did see Jesus. Everything he said in the prior passage, he really did see Jesus. He really does believe the gospel is true. His conscience is clean. Like, he really is convinced of this Christianity thing. It's completely 100% historical and 100% true. That is a simple, non-combative statement that he is then struck in the mouth for. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it says mouth here and not face or cheek because these men are against his speech. They're against his words. They're against the things that are proceeding from his mouth and they want to stop them. And these men, probably, these Jews probably range from thinking Paul's lying to thinking he's espousing bad theology to just not liking the idea of his testimony because it's personally offensive. But the whole thing just reeks of the demonic. He, you know, Paul's sitting there telling the truth about the truth, Jesus, who is called the truth. He calls himself the truth in the gospel accounts. And these Jesus-labeled children of the devil, so Jesus calls these same types of people in his ministry beforehand, whose natural language is lying, which again is from the mouth of Jesus earlier in the gospel accounts, strike his mouth where truth has been pouring forth from. And so it's just really cool how Luke does this because it's kind of like it's suggesting there's this war of words happening. There's this truth being spoken and people who want to kind of hold it in uh, as best they can and and smack the mouth of the one who is uh, espousing what they either believe again to be lies or things that are personally offensive and dethroning of uh, them as religious human beings. So it's a war of words. But again, a a losing proposition for these Jews because it's kind of like trying to stop the Mississippi River with your hands or to stop the sun with your hand. It's just not going to work. Truth comes into the world. In fact, if if we've learned anything really when it comes to like mission and acts, isn't it that? that the, the more you try to persecute Christians, the more it spreads. And that's still happening globally today, especially in highly persecuted areas of the world. Uh, when you talk to the persecuted church, uh, they don't ask for relief from persecution. They, they actually see the goodness in it because the more Christians are killed and hated and denounced, the more the church grows, which fits beautifully with the Christian gospel, right? At the core of the gospel is God using Jesus' death to bring about a resurrection and to bring about salvation to all who believe. And it plays out, it's demonstrated in the persecution of of the church today. And that's the first lesson with this. Just a couple of quick sidebars when we think about what do we learn from Paul being struck as a human being, a Christian human, is one, that Christians just simply will be persecuted. This will happen. Some of you are presently being persecuted persecuted. Maybe not hit in the mouth, um, but you're being persecuted at work or laughed at in your neighborhood or with your friends or at college or wherever uh, because of your beliefs. Uh, and, and it's becoming increasingly hostile in this country to, uh, again, espouse and believe the things that, that we do. But here's the thing. We will be persecuted, but as we're seeing from Paul, this is a great lesson and a reminder, persecuted primarily over our, the content of our gospel. So it might be our character sometimes, but it will primarily be over our preaching and our words. And I mean preaching kind of wide, broad scale, not just what I'm doing here right now, but all of us as we just herald good news and say, hey, the war is over and there's a new king, right? Like we're announcing the headline of a a newspaper or a a news, news website. Like we're announcing history. We're announcing truth. God has come. 
into the world to rescue sinners uh, like us. And that's what persecution arises for. So remember, the gospel in Paul's gospel, and this is why it's so important to see how Acts is an angry book. It's a book full of riots. Is the gospel is not go and love each other. That's not the Christian gospel. Not that that's not a part of Christian teaching. It is. That's not the gospel because, and we know that's not the core of Paul's teaching or, or evangelism because that doesn't incite riots. It doesn't make people angry. Like even today, just saying go and love each other, that's not offensive. That's, that, that's not going to instill, strike his mouth for saying that. How dare you say love each other? Nor is that going to incite riots and hatred over the Christian message as we've seen kind of come up time and time again. Instead, what we see is how dare you, Christian, talk about grace towards an acceptance of the wicked. And that reconciliation with God is not based on our works, but on his choice just to reveal grace to us on his watch. See, that's an offensive message because to people who are trusting in their moral effort, it knocks the legs completely out from underneath that table. And it says, none of that counts. And that will instill riots. That will incite the high priest to say, strike that man in the mouth. How dare he um, knock the legs out from underneath all of my, like my trophy case and my moral efforts and, and so forth. And so it explains the anger. It explains the offense. And it plays right into in today's passage. So that's kind of a review from where we've been. But if you're, some of you are brand new today, uh, understand that's what we've been seeing in Acts is the message of the gospel in sight. Even though it's the best news in the world because it means we're loved by a God not based on what we have to give him but based on who he is and his character. He's the most generous, kind, loving being in the universe. And it's not even a close second. So that's what the gospel means. And we see it expressed in the fact that he's willing to die for us. And yet, because it's so much about that, it becomes so little about what we have to give God. And that's why the New Testament does not talk about us giving anything to him, but us receiving Jesus Christ, which is the opposite of all other world religions. Every other world religion is about climbing the ladder in some capacity and turning the face of God towards us through moral effort, now, through prayer, through fasting, through tithing, through uh, volunteerism, through humanitarianism. Christianity says it's the complete opposite. Christ is the ultimate humanitarian. He's the ultimate volunteer. He's the ultimate one who has come down the ladder to save us because we couldn't get up. Nothing we do could, could ascend us into heaven. So God had to become like us, walk among us, share our burdens, teach us, heal us, dine with us, ultimately die for us on the cross as he did 2,000 years ago and rise again. All right, that's the first piece. The second lesson here is just noting Paul's contrite response once he realizes who he's talking to. Uh, th this part of the passage is notoriously difficult to interpret, so if you're thinking, man, that's hard to understand, like what Paul's actually saying there, you're not alone, this is tricky. It's hard to tell if he's being sarcastic or if he's just ignorant or if he thinks he's sinning or just trying to err on the side of kindness or maybe coming under the law, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, for a time to bridge the gospel to these Jews. I mean, that could be a part of it as well. We just don't totally know. But we do see basically, and this kind of like gets at where I lean with all those options, but I think basically most people would, would align with this, is that we at least note his humility here 
without rolling back the rebuke, and I'll come back to that because he meant what he said, but his humility in owning up to uh, speaking about a, a ruler. He's quoting the Old Testament when he says, when he quotes this, this, this statement or this law, this, when he owns up to what, to what he did there and says, I didn't know he was, the, he was the high priest. So all of that's in contrast to the Jews who are exemplifying pride. So basically what we see here is a clash. There's a lot of clashes going on today. So if you're keeping a list, this is the first one. There's a clash of character, all right? So that we have humility on one side and pride on the other. And, there, and there's a reason why that's the case. There's a, there's a place that humility comes from, and it's not the heart of Paul. It's the heart of God. And so we'll, we'll explain that later as well. But at least we see it here at face value, humility and pride uh, contrasting. And why this is so important, like on an evangelistic level, uh, a lot of you are in, in process of sharing the gospel with people who are not Christians yet. Some of you might not be Christians yet here, and that's great. Glad you're here. But those of you like, who are hearing this for the first time or from a non-Christian perspective, or if you're sharing the gospel with people, family or, or friends who are not yet Christians. Like what, What's so beautiful about this is we see Paul's willingness to say, I was wrong, as he's representing truth. So Paul's willingness to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, or maybe I don't know the answer to that question, as he's representing 100% hardcore truth. And that's possible because of the nature of the gospel. You know, that mix is wonderful because it means our sinfulness is mixed with the truthfulness of the perfect gospel. If the gospel was like all about morality and Paul is not being perfectly moral in front of these Jewish leaders, there'd be an inconsistent problem with that, right? That's not the essence of, of, of the gospel. It doesn't excuse sin. It just says that basically the point here is I before you am a Christian who makes mistakes every day, who sins every day, way more than I even realize, who's dead in my sins, who's a wretch, and yet I have the truth because the truth is not hinged to my moralism. The truth is not hinged to my actions. The truth, the truth is objective to me. It's outside of me. And it's about, anyway, Christ coming into the world to save sinners. And so the posture we have then when we talk with people, Christian or not, uh, says a lot about our message, right? If, if our posture is always perfect, we can never apologize, um, that might do an injustice. Uh, th- like parents, for example, too. This, this can apply anywhere like in life, but those of you who are parents, one of the best ways to share the gospel with your kids is as you're talking about Jesus, like in the grand scheme of things, is to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for hurting you. I'm sorry for what I said yesterday. Um, when I was quick to get angry with you yesterday, and I've said this to my kids before, when I was quick to get angry with you, the Bible says God is not quick to anger. I was not like God in that moment. So don't think that what I did, don't project what I did to you onto God because he's very different. He's much better than I was. You know, so as you bring that to your, your kids, again, anybody, friends, spouses, neighbors, coworkers, as, as we bring the gospel to people, we can have this. But I'm just saying, like, as a parent, I've, I've seen this as well. Like, our kids need to see that Christianity is not the, the facade of perfectionism. It is brokenness, a broken reception of God's gift of salvation. And as we can mix that with apologies um, where appropriate, it just go, goes, goes a long way. So anyway, a little bit of an aside there, but it can apply to all walks of life and relationships, but, but uh, parents consider that. All right, so those are those two quick aside lessons kind of things from the first layer of Paul being struck. But 
there, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye, all right? So um, I'm going to say something here about this, and then I'm going to spin off the rest of our time talking about what this means. But there's much more going on than simply physical strikes or hits and threats. In this case, Paul kind of threatening um, the, the, the Old Testament high priest, Ananias. And what I mean here is, symbolically, so at least hear this basically, this might be brand new to a lot of you, but symbolically, elsewhere in the Bible, the Bible connects the Old Testament priesthood, so think of the high priest here as like the main priest, but the Old Testament, the office of being a priest in Old Testament times before Christ, but it's also kind of spreading into the present here as well in the book of Acts, even though Jesus has come. It connects the Old Testament priesthood with the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Old Covenant. We see an example of this in Hebrews 7.12, which I don't have on screen, but I'll just summarize it. In Hebrews 7.12 in the New Testament, it says, when you change the priesthood, you necessarily change all of the laws as well in the whole old system. So that's how connected the role of priest is to the whole covenant. Covenant just means testament or like set of rules or stipulations between God and people. And there's two in the Bible, an old and a new one, but it, Hebrews 7 gets at, and there's a big reason for this, a beautiful reason, which we don't have time to go into today. I kind of will later, actually, through the lens of Acts 23. But in Acts 7, he's just saying, when you change the priesthood, you change everything. The whole, te- the whole system changes with it. So with this in mind, with that kind of rule in mind, Paul, back in Acts 23, is being struck here not just by a man, not just by a high priest, but by what the high priest represents, which is the whole Old Testament, the law and the cold, impossible conditionality and moral expectations therein. So then with this in mind, we have this like neat little illustrative reminder that like the high priest to Paul here, like the high priest strikes Paul, so does the moral law of the Bible strike at us and harm us. Paul, the same guy in question here in today's passage, writes in one of his letters to one of the churches in the New Testament, he says the law kills or strikes. And he contrasts this with the work of the Spirit of God through Jesus being some, someone that gives us life. And we'll, we'll come to that. But here we're just, we're in this place where we're seeing the law strikes. It, it, it exposes our inability to, to keep us. All the conditional do this and then you will lives of the Bible, those conditionalisms, do not give us life, but instead expose our inability to keep them. And so I'm just trying to give you like a quick little synopsis of the role and purpose of the Old Testament law, like the Ten Commandments. There are different kinds of laws too, and so it gets complicated. But think of like the moral law. This is as Paul says himself in Romans, the law came in to make the problem worse. It, it actually made sin bigger because it exposed our inability to do it and to keep it. So another solution might be wanted for and yearned for and prayed for and looked ahead to as it was always meant to come into the world. And so that's all the, the dark backdrop then against which Christ, Jesus, shines all the brighter as the true solution. But here's the contrast. And so before we get to that, where we see in the story, I mean, even here in the New Testament, after, this is all after Jesus has come into the world to make the New Testament, we're still seeing this contrast play out to teach the same lesson because we're forgetful. 
God has it on repeat. But here's the contrast. In the story, this pervasive theme of the law killing, judging, exposing our nakedness and shame, increasing our guilt, and not allowing us to access God fully, and acting like a judge over us, just like the high priest is here in the story to Paul. Acting like a judge that harms. That's a great like, synopsis of what the law in the Bible does to us. It judges, it exposes nakedness, it condemns. It doesn't lead to, to freeing life. But that's where you have to kind of wallow from it. That's how the whole thing starts. Paul is struck not just by a man, but what the man represents. And that is the old, the entire old covenant testament system and laws therein. And that leads me to my second layer today, which is the whitewashed high priest will be struck. So we started with Paul is struck, and now we're looking at the high priest will be, it's kind of forecasted, but Paul's saying God will do this to you, he will, he will strike you uh, in, in the future. All right, so let's kind of unpack what actually is happening here uh, a little bit. So it starts with Paul, who seems a little bit upset, obviously, as, as any, any of us might be if someone hit us in, in the teeth. Um, but Paul's upset after, after being struck, and we don't know if he's calm here or angry. Like, he could have been, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Or he could have been kind of calmly saying, God in the future will strike you as well. You're a whitewashed wall you, as, as a high priest. And so he could have been kind of prophetically just kind of pronouncing that to an account. We just don't know. It makes it hard to kind of understand narrative sometimes, the, the feel of it. We can guess. It's not the most important thing, though. What's the most important thing is just what he says and how he responds. God will strike you too, you whitewashed. Then he goes further and says, you whitewashed wall. So it's one of those moments where you're like, ouch, sounds, sounds harsh, but what is that again? <laughs> is that an insult? I don't know. Is that, what's a whitewashed wall? All right, he, here's where it comes from. Uh, Matthew 23, it's, it comes from Jesus himself, who interestingly does the exact same thing to the exact same types of people. All right, so just a quick, quick hit pause here for a second to remind you, we've been, making, we've been connecting these dots all throughout the series because the Bible's at pains to do this, to show us how Paul is re-imaging Jesus for us. Not perfectly, of course, because he's a sinner like us, but God wants the story of Christ to be put on repeat through Paul's experiences. And so Jesus did this whole whitewashed wall thing first, and now Paul's bringing it up again to kind of hearken us back to the first time it happened to allow, us, to allow it to define kind of what's happening here. Have that in mind as we go forward because there's a lot more going on here in terms of Paul resembling Jesus, but you start to see it here, all right? But back to what we were saying, let's define whitewashed wall or as Jesus says tomb. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay, now stop right there. Jesus is speaking to really, really good religious people when he says this. Really, really good religious people. Now going back to what I was saying about what, like what aspect of the gospel offends and starts riots, this is what I'm talking about, right? This is problematic for people who think that their outward actions count or that they are inherently good. 
This is a hard message to hear. This is a part of like the pre-gospel message though, to come to terms with this and understand this is who we are. And so keep that in mind as we, as we go forth here. But basically, back in Acts 23, what Paul is doing then to the high priest, Ananias, is he's, is he's rebuking him kind of individually on one level. So this is a rebuke of the high priest because of how he breaks the law in front of Paul. More on that in a second. But as we've also been saying, he's also rebuking what the high priest represents, the old law and the covenant itself. And, and this is why this line is important, highlighted here in yellow. Contra, Paul says, you, you uphold the law, you, you operate and judge me according to the law, you cling to the Old Testament law as kind of your, your foundation for your religion, yet contrary to it, so that they're breaking the law, they're sinning. So contrary to the same law that they cling to, you order me to be struck. And so Paul's not just saying here to the guy, you're sinning, he's saying, the whole Old Covenant system with all of its moral demands isn't working. It's whitewashed itself, having the outward appearance of glory and power, but, but inwardly it's full of death. This whole thing reminded me of uh, how Jesus in Mark 13 rebukes the Old Testament temple. He likens it to a fig tree that looks good from afar, but up close there's no fruit on it. Disappointing. And so he likens that tree to the whole Old Testament, to all the Jews that were seeking to keep the law but couldn't keep it and were failing to do it and how the temple was like the signpost of the whole system and itself represented the whole Old Covenant, the whole Old Testament. And Jesus says, he rebukes it, he curses it. He says that one day it will be taken up, like the, the mountain itself, which the temple in Jerusalem was on the top of, it'll be taken up and thrown into the heart of, a sea, of the sea, which is a picture of biblical judgment. He's completely undoing the old system for the sake of establishing, starting something brand new around himself. And so back in Acts 23, the priest then embodies this on a micro scale. He, he is breaking the law right in front of Paul. He is like the fig tree without the fruit. He's like the whitewashed wall. Looks good on the outside, but then when it kind of comes down to brass tacks, he's not able to keep it. He's breaking it. This thing he's calling central, everything comes down to keeping the law perfectly. He can't keep it for two seconds in front of Paul. See, it's a, it's a call out of the whole Old Testament system and all of its conditionality, all of its do this and you will live. Will lives. You can't keep it, he's saying, to one of his Jewish brothers, nor can I. And now you strike my mouth for preaching the long-awaited better covenant that has come to save us all? See, and here's a sobering thought. This isn't just true about the high priest, sort of like out there with religious people. This is like a depiction of humanity. This is true for us as well. What happens, this is true of like, what happens when we foolishly reach for good without God? When we reach for good without Christ, we depict ourselves as a whitewashed tomb or a wall. When we seek to maintain a relationship with God based on our religious merit, you know, we might look good on the outside, but inside there's rotten bones. The, the rotten bones of our inner character are revealed. Our motives are exposed as being at least partially selfish. Uh, our 
you know, our goodness might be pursued, uh, but it's pursued for us a lot of times, in other words, not for others. And so we put it on Instagram. You know, we want other people to know what we've done as just a small example of this, you know. And that's, that is something Jesus talks about, the Sermon on the Mount, but, but reaching for good without Jesus is not okay. This is why we talk in these terms. God is not anti-good, obviously. He's the essence of good. But reaching for goodness without God is a problem. It leads to this kind of condemning statement. We are not, we look good on the outside, but inside we are full of all of us. I am, all of us, full of rotten bones and dead corpses. And though we might succeed in the 1%, the other 99% of the time we fail. And it's the definition of hypocrisy. And so we too, in our faux fake goodness, without Christ, are whitewashed walls ripe for judgment. And so we have to let this wash over us if we are to accept the good news. This is why Jesus, his message is offensive, but this is why it's such good news at the same time. He came to save people from reaching for good without him. He didn't come to teach us to be good humanitarians, and that's it. He came to die for people who were staring in the face the impossibility of doing enough to please him. And so to transition back to this then uh, a little bit, in Acts 23, and I'll, I'll, I'll um, make a comparison and contrast here uh, that fits with the whitewashed wall priest, and we'll, we'll spin off on that for one more layer to this. One more striking of a high priest. But back to Paul for a second. Really what we're seeing here is a clash of two high priests. All right, so if you were here a few weeks ago, this might sound familiar. If you weren't, this might just sound like really weird, but just hang with me. Basically what we're seeing in this story, in Acts 23, is a clash of not one, but two high priests. The high priest himself, the obvious one, right? The Old Testament high priest, who represents the Old Testament and the law, and then Paul as well, who resembled a new kind of high priest by resembling Jesus, who was himself the ultimate high priest. So remember a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about how Paul was uh, laid, laid across with two chains and how we looked into that term biblically where that comes from and how that's a part of the high priestly garb in the Old Testament. So we made that symbolic connection between Paul and the and Paul being a representative of Jesus, a representative of a new way, a new way of belief. It's a, it's a completely new system now. So what we have here basically in the story is two priests, one that's striking us and hitting us, and one that's being struck himself. Very important to understand this, and we'll, uh, I'll explain it more here as we go, but there's one priest who is actively hitting, harming, and striking, who represents the Old Testament and one who is being struck himself, who represents the new. See the difference? Similarity and difference, right? But there are two different high priests that represent two different ways of relating with God. And so even there, we're like invited into consideration of which way are we going to pursue? Are you pursuing through what you do? Are you pursuing through what God offers you through his bloody son? There's only two options, and we're all born into the former way, until we're kind of adopted into and brought over into uh, the second way, right? All you Christians, this is your story, right? This is, what, this is where you've come from, like me. This is where you've gotten to. You're in, we're in a different system now completely than the, the former one. And that's really the point here, and this is the third and best point to all of this, which is 
Jesus was struck. So Paul was struck, the whitewashed high priest will be struck, and Jesus is struck as well. Yes, even in this passage. Maybe you're thinking, he's not in there, Chris, but he actually is on two levels. One, both because he's inside Paul. Remember that theology from Acts? We talked about that when the church is harmed, Jesus is being harmed. So Jesus himself says this, when you harm my church, you actively, at the exact same time, harm me. If that's true, then right when Paul's being struck, Jesus himself is actively experiencing pain through his people. He's spiritually being struck in that moment, right? Okay, so that's, that's the one piece. The other piece is related also because he, Jesus, is being typified by Paul here as well. This whole story bears a strong resemblance to Matthew 26, which happened earlier in history, earlier in theology, when Jesus went through the same thing Paul did and the same language is used so that we would connect these stories. Look what it says in Matthew 26, right before his crucifixion. The high priest, okay, same figure, different guy, but same role, tore his clothes after Jesus said, I am God, tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists and others slapped him. All right, so note the similarity. There's high priests and there's striking uh, in both passages. And from there, uh, we, we extrapolate. But then, then the differences as well, and I'll mention these quick before we draw theology from this. Note the differences. Paul in Acts 23 rebukes them but then dials it back when he finds out that it's the high priest who was ordered, who ordered that he be struck. But in Jesus' story, he stays silent. And the Jews who struck him don't repent, though they're speaking evil of and striking the actual true high priest. See the irony there? It's like they're actually striking the true high priest, which is Jesus, the one who truly mediates us to God, and they're not repenting. But in Paul, who's exuding humility as a new kind of high priest, does actually pull back and, and repent. So, you see some more of that kind of uh, moral characteristic kind of happening there as well, that kind of contrast, moral contrast between humility and pride. But what I really want you to see is, is this. This is the true high priest showdown that Paul helpfully reminds us of. Matthew 26 is being evoked through the lens of Acts 23, where he and Jesus in Matthew 26 the true divine high priest who represents the New Testament is struck by the human priest of the Old Testament, an old system of works and laws that struck and killed and exposed rather than saved. And yet, Jesus isn't losing here because the fact that the high priest Jesus is struck is the essence of the New Testament. You see the contrast here? There's two high priests, Jesus and in this case Caiaphas, who was the high priest before Ananias, who we read about in Acts 23. But same role, one who's representing the old law strikes, harms, hurts, exposes, brings up shame and inability to keep the standards. The other testament, it, the, the nucleus, the, the son of the solar system in the second testament, in Jesus' testament, in the New Testament, is a high priest being struck. The fact that he was struck for us is the center of everything. See the difference in how it's almost a little bit, though they compare, it's a little bit apples to oranges. Jesus did not come into the world teaching us to keep the law. He didn't, he didn't come cl cleaning off a little bit of smudge on the whitewashed tombs or 
entering into the tombs and taking out all the bones and corpses and putting in spices. That's not what he does, right? He exemplifies a completely different system where he's not striking and exposing and and commanding laws and rules and stipulations that can't be kept. He's coming to be that stipulation himself. He's coming to be harmed and struck for us. See, again, even there, you see the invitation? Are we going to be struck by the rules, exposed, or believe in the one who was exposed to the, to the elements, to the, to the, the crucifix, to the, the, to the flogging, to the shame, to the nakedness himself for us as a substitute? This is why right before this, Jesus says, I'm making a New Testament with you, and it's symbolized in bread and wine to get at my body, which is like the bread that's about to be broke, and my blood, which is about to be spilt. And when you eat it you and believe and trust in it, you become a Christian. As a sinner who's extremely imperfect and a lawbreaker, when you believe in Jesus, we, we are released, we are freed. Remember when Moses uh, struck the rock in the Old Testament? Those of you who have read this before, Numbers 20, just to remind you of this. After Israel came up out of Egypt, when they exodus out, they were thirsty. And it said, Moses, a leader of the people, struck the rock and it poured forth water. In the New Testament, Paul, the same guy we're talking about today, theologizes about this and says, that rock actually was Christ. Spiritually speaking, he was so close in that moment to that rock and to the idea of what was happening there that we can affirm the rock was Christ. You see another striking event here in what happened when he was struck? People were nourished. But here's the thing. Did the law at any point in the Old Testament do this? Those of you who have read the Old Testament before or know know these things, did it ever pour forth water and nourish people? Just the opposite. It was a dark, uh, condemning, Uh, don't come close or you will die type covenant. The New Testament is God comes close to us because he's able to now because Jesus' blood was spilt. And he was, because he was struck, the, the blood, the spiritual water of his blood pours forth and we can drink deeply of it and, and be saved. And, and so it's another angle on this, but since it deals with striking, that's why I, I just want you guys to see or be reminded of this, that the whole Bible testifies to this that there are two testaments. One strikes, one heals, or one is struck. And the rock in the Old Testament is the New Testament beforehand. It forecasts a time where God is going to move apart from the temple, apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from the law, apart from the rules, and he's going to establish new ones built around himself, built around actually the fact that he was struck for us. So one covenant's built on Jesus being struck. One, again, the former one, is built on the fact that the law strikes. And and this is, and I just want you guys to hear, I mean, if anything, uh, you guys are in different places spiritually today, and that's great. But wherever you're at, Christian or not, hear God call out to you in this and say, hear me, I'm all over the pages of this book. I was struck for you. And and from my broken body on the cross, poured forth life. Drink from me. Not from the law, not from your trophies and crowns. Let those things go. 
and instead drink from me. That's the invitation of the gospel, right? That Paul is beautifully, even though Christ isn't in the passage in Acts 23, he's so in the passage. He's everywhere in it. And Paul so helpfully reminds us of this uh, with the rebuke, with being struck, and in both those things point ahead to the New Testament of the Christ being struck in our place. So a couple of final things from the last paragraph, which I'm not going to preach today for time's sake. Um, I want to spend most of our time looking at the theme of a high priest being struck and how central the theme that is in the Bible. But I do want to mention a couple of things, the biggest of which is just to notice how the tribune, remember, after the clamor arises, against the backdrop here of Paul and Jesus being struck, which is key, but the tribune, the Roman tribune, saves Paul from being torn to pieces, which is a great phrase Uh, Maybe when I read that the first time, you thought this too, but it's one of my things this week is just like, that seems to be an exaggeration. You know, like torn to pieces. Like I can see a mob stomping on Paul and killing him that way, but like tearing his flesh apart, like torn to pieces, isn't that a little bit much or a bit exaggerated? If you didn't, well, maybe you should. (laughs) It's exaggerated. That's the point. Luke is exaggerating the language, and he's doing that for the sake of theology because... When it comes to sin and death, it's not exaggerated. In fact, it's underplayed, if anything. It should remind us a bit here of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and how God spared Daniel from being torn to pieces by the lion, just like Paul's being spared here. But, but the point to this being is because Jesus was struck, because he was torn to pieces, you too can be saved. And, we, and myself, we can all be saved from ourselves being torn to pieces by things like our shame and the devil and our sin and the wrath of God which is coming against all forms of unrighteousness and evil. But, but what the gospel says through the lens of Acts 23 is hear my son, hear the echoes of his voice in this passage and believe the good news that he was struck and torn to pieces for those of us who were under that judgment. He substituted himself for us. And then again, finally, this contrast of the law striking. But in Acts 23.11, kind of this passing comment at the end where it said, where Luke the author says, after Paul's brought in the barracks, it said, the Lord Jesus appeared and stood by him. And that is, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to overstate how important that is to see. Again, against the backdrop of the priests who stood there hitting him, who represent the law, and now Jesus who stands right by him. Do you see the contrast? Because of the gospel, God is able to get to us and to stand by us and advocate for us, and we can see his face. There's communion there again. But with the old system, ones stand by to strike and to hit and to expose nakedness. And, um, and that's why I think there's this literary device used here um, of standing, like the, the former servants before and of the high priest and the high priest, they stood by to harm. Jesus stands by in our pain, in our shame, and he's literally in prison here. And Jesus is there through it, saving, for, forgiving, because this happened. You know, like, um, if you've read the Old Testament before, is God able to stand right next to people without consequence? It never happens. You know, so when we see this happen, this should like freak us out in, in a good way. This, 
The fact that God stands by people and people don't just melt under the, the glory of his power and, and his light and his perfection, which you could not, people could not access God in the Old Testament because of their sin. But because sin's dealt with here, God is, see, it's not just that we're able to draw near to God and stand next to God. Look what it says. Who's doing the active thing here? Who's doing the active thing? It's Jesus. Who's standing by who? Jesus comes to stand next to us. And so what we see in this is this beautiful, like, tapestry, of, thematic tapestry of a story of the problem leading to the solution and of a God who wants to be with you, you guys. If you hear anything, your God wants to stand close to you. He wants to be reconciled to you. He wants to express his love to you. He wants to save you from your sins and from hell and from eternal separation of being able to stand by him. This is emblematic of the new earth where Christians for, from all nations and in all time will be able to stand with him and see him and commune with him forever and, and this perfect utopic new earth existence. That's coming because of the one who was struck. Not the one who came to strike, the one who was struck uh, for us. And so I just want to encourage you guys with that. Again, Christian or not, uh, it, the invitation of God in Acts 23 to you and me is to drink deeply of this grace. Believe and drink deeply of this, this grace. And don't try to stand by him, climb the ladder, or access through the veil of the temple, but instead believe in the one who toppled the whole old system, which was about us, and replaced it with himself. So let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for this passage. Uh, it's a tricky one. Uh, thank you, though, God, for making yourself clear in it. Uh, you are the clarifying agent of tricky passages. It is always about you. So thank you, God, for in this, uh, in this work just reminding us or maybe telling us some of us for the first time that it's not by our works that we're saved. In fact, the law strikes us and kills us, but instead it's by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus, the one, the struck one, the one who was struck for us, though we deserved it, that we're saved. Uh, it is a contrast of high priests. It's a contrast of covenants. It's a contrast of ideologies. Uh, and yet you are the one who comes out the other end uh, as you're, you're the only one, the only way to be saved is to believe in you and what you've done for us on that cross. So thank you for being struck for us. Thank you for standing close to us, for coming to our rescue, coming into the world to do that. And that it's not based on any semblance of moral merit in our bodies or in our hearts or in our minds. Nothing. In fact, that's why we see the worst of people sometimes saved and the best of people not. And so God, uh, allow those things to prod at us and to poke at us and to flip our ideas of religion around to not what we have to give you, but what you have to give us and how you became bloody for us so we might become your sons and daughters. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.